0: How do I know what I think until I see what I say?
1: I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. So today is the second episode of our two-part series with Adam Robinson. First episode, Adam covered a lot of things from leadership styles, how to deal with depression, and shared some of his own personal battles as well. Adam continues the conversation in this episode and goes into some detail on what leadership means to him and how all of us can continue to improve ourselves while helping others at the same time. So we're just gonna jump right in where we left off. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you again for listening and hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. I thought it was a really great advice when you talked to your uh, female that you said, go out, call one of those individuals that uh, that are in trouble. I think it was Robbins, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but he made a quote of something along the lines that depression is just uh, an over obsession on yourself. I think that's a little unfair you know,
2: it's really unfair because it doesn't help the person escape it. It's almost like, oh, thanks a lot, but it does not help you get out of it. And so you wanna direct people to do things that will change their state of mind. Here's another thing that's worth knowing about, the Benjamin Franklin effect. So Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, he wrote about, uh, I forget the dude's name, but he needed one particular guy's support on a political bill only problem was, this guy hated Franklin. He <laughs> was like his worst enemy, and Franklin hated him, but he desperately needed this guy's support. So how do you get your enemy to help you? So Franklin writes him a letter one day, on a uh, you know, fancy stationery, a you know, little calling card, and it has it delivered. He said, dear so-and-so, it's well known throughout the colonies and even Europe that yours is one of the finest libraries in the world. And I wonder if you could set aside our political differences this one time and lend me a volume of Aristotle's whatever, Nicomachean Ethics. And so the guy says, okay, well, you know, screw you, Franklin, but okay, I'll lend you the book. And the thing is, you don't lend books to people you don't like. You only lend books to your friends. And so what Franklin got him to do unwittingly was to get the guy to act like a friend. A few months later, they became best friends, both of them, and remained so till the end of their, their, their days.
1: I've had a debate with one of my coworkers, and I'll ask you the question Are all acts of kindness and giving self serving? And I asked because you said you are an incredible gift giver, but you're also selfish because you give gifts for your own well, pleasure.
2: It, I get pleasure out of it, but there's no, I don't have any problem with that. You know, if I cure cancer and I have a blast doing it, does that make it any less a boon for mankind? I don't think so. And from your perspective, really, I delight others because it delights me to do so.
1: So then, it's not important. A
2: sense of obligation. I do so because it. I can't imagine having more fun. So I don't need to enter that debate. Is Adams helping that person a selfless act? What difference does it make? The person has been helped and I had a great time.
1: I think that's a great answer, actually. Uh, that could also end the debate. Uh, you can't, there's no response to that. So
2: yeah, I mean, what's the big deal? So I have pleasure out of helping people. It's sort of a, a chicken egg thing in the sense that I do it. I know it's going to give me pleasure, but I also, it's a sincere wanting to create fun and delight for the other person. I, I don't, it's not a transactional thing like, I'll feel better if I do this.
1: Joe brought up stoicism. I'll be honest. I consider you a modern day stoic. And I know that you, in one of your, I think it was your Tim Ferriss podcast, you said that there's something missing in stoicism.
2: So stoicism, by the way, a brilliant philosophy. And what I meant by it is just, it's created to protect the heart. Right. Don't get attached to things. Really, a lot of it is that don't get attached to things. Right. Don't get attached to things you can't control, people you can't control or or anything. And a lot of it is that which is actually kind of a Buddhist philosophy. Right. Non-attachment. And where I I have a little fault with it is it's not fun. I'll create fun for someone and I'll be attached to it in the moment that I'm experiencing it. And when it's over, I'll let it go. If you look at pictures of Buddha, he's almost always smiling. Got a big, jolly, fat belly. Why? Because he has a great time. He's not on any, the 300 diet. (laughs) He's just having a good time. And I would say that, that there's an enlightened, playful stoicism. I think it's possible to be fully engaged, have your emotions engaged, but not to be attached to things. So it's the same thing. It's just a little more, it just injects a little joy into it. So that's a good point. Like You, you raise a good point.
1: You've been around some of, uh, I would consider, great leaders, uh, modern day leaders. What are some qualities, some top qualities that you've seen in great leaders or top qualities in leaders that you've looked up to throughout time, not just sure. people you've known personally? I think a, a big part of it is a dedication
2: to, to a larger mission. It's not like a leader thinks of himself as a leader. He just is, just embodies the leadership. Probably a lot of leaders would be embarrassed if I said, you're a leader. You know, they might almost be embarrassed, like, oh, well, okay, but I'm not really. I'm just being myself. The best leaders lead by example, like Stephen Jobs sweeping up. Now, there are a lot of qualities he had I wouldn't emulate. <laughs> Screaming at people who couldn't meet his level of, of expectations. But he was a tortured soul. I mean, in a sense, the way to think about it is he was screaming at himself as well. I think you you embody it. And there's also, I think, a teaching element. A great leader empowers his or her followers, really empowers them. There's a great quote, Queen Victoria was asked about Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone. They're both 19th century, they're both statesmen and they're both brilliant. And so Queen Victoria, I don't know, it's like in 1890, she said, when I talk to William Gladstone, I feel he is the most intelligent man in England. And when I talk to Benjamin Disraeli, I feel that I am the most intelligent person in England. Who do you think she loved? There's a self-effacing quality to leaders. You know, there's that French phrase, noblesse oblige. You lead because you've been gifted with qualities that other people don't have. It's almost a, uh, not almost, it's a noblesse oblige, it's an obligation. Those are qualities I would think of the leaders that I know. And again, I, I think they would, each one of the people I'm thinking of would deny the the label.
1: So one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast, because it started from a blog. Joe mm. started this you know, about eight years ago with a mm. blog and a reading list. So we talk a lot about books. We've had some authors on the show. It seems that a lot of the people that I look up to or that I see, they admittedly read like crazy. So I'm just curious of your thoughts. How important is reading Reading? in somebody's development?
2: Yes. That's a really good question. I don't read very much. I really don't. It would astonish people how little I read. I'm more a forager of ideas. Like I'll go into a book. And I'll forage for an idea or two. And I'll I'll grab those two ideas. And that's good. That's a great book for me. I think indiscriminate reading, just reading, reading, reading without any organic sense of a plan is counterproductive. Because when you're reading, you're gaining information, but you're not integrating it. I know people who literally read like a book a week. I know people that read more than a book a week. I go, good. How have you integrated that last week's book into your life right now? They can't, there's no way because they're off to the next book. Someone would get more benefit from reading 10 books multiple times, like Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. Good, read that one 10 times instead of reading 10 different books. Remember, Bruce Lee said, I don't fear the man who's practiced 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who's practiced one kick Ten thousand times, there are so many great books that take years to fully extract all the wisdom and integrate it into your life. So I don't read that much. In fact, I spend more time writing books, frankly, than I do reading them. I scan for ideas. Probably I, I scan—I don't know—twenty or thirty books a week, but I'm just scanning for an idea or two. Maybe the table of context, contents, contents, or, or, or the index. But I'm—I'm I'm too busy, you know, thinking about things to be reading all the time. Remember, you're reading, you're not doing anything else. You're not building anything. Now, Buffett and Munger read a ton, but they're also foraging for ideas, investment ideas. Also, they are foraging for mental models, new ways to think about things, to read in an organic way, not to like read a lot of biology or read a lot of psychology or philosophy. Then you go really deep. Whiteskin has talked about this, and and many people, is. You really want to go deep into something, not just a superficial understanding, which is what people get, right? They read a book once. They go, oh, great. I I understand that. No, you don't. And the fact that you think you do is a problem.
1: I think it was Einstein that said, if you can't explain a problem in very simplistic terms, then you don't understand that problem.
2: My father said that to me. I must have been about seven years old. He said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it. You know, I co-founded the Princeton Review and I I had to explain really complex concepts to uh, teenagers and even preteens, and so you get you get really good at simplifying things down because the only way that that they'll understand it. I joke around with my friends. I say I have a cocoa puff brain. I really I can't keep too much in my head at one time, so I, I, I'm forced to simplify.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about uh, you talked you spent a lot of time writing books, and I remember when we talked last year. Uh, You said that Tim Ferriss gave you some advice uh, when you were writing uh, your last book Mm -hmm. on the audience. Could you talk about
2: that a little bit? Sure. So, last December, so December 2018, like a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, day after Christmas, Buffett uh, endorsed my book, How Not to Be Stupid. Tim read it and he offered some really good, he said, oh, this is really great, Adam, but could you shorten some of the examples? and provide more non-obvious advice. You know, the thing about wisdom, I I sat with that comment for a couple of weeks and I had an epiphany. The thing about wisdom is that it's always really simple. And so everyone goes, but I know that already because they've heard it before, but they actually don't know it. They don't know it at all. I'll give you a perfect example. Warren Buffett, I don't know, IQ 180, 190, something like that, and one of the best human beings on the planet. You can't believe what a good soul he is. And obviously, the greatest investor of all time. And he summarized everything he knew about investing in two rules. Those of you who don't know the rules and you're listening, just remember it's Buffett summarizing a lifetime of wisdom. Buffett's advice to you, Jacob, and you, Joe, you want to get as rich as I am. Rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. And the thing is, people hear that, they go, okay, thanks so much, Warren, but how do I make it? And he would say, I just told you how. But people don't, because it's actually, to not lose money forces you to do dozens of other things. It's not just don't lose money, and that's it. No, if you're not going to lose money, you have to do a bunch of other things. And those other things guarantee that you make money. Here's how to become world boxing champ. Want to hear Great, never get hit in the face. Just don't get hit in the face and you'll become world champ. And if you watch old film clips of of Muhammad Ali, his face moves around faster than like you can't believe. At one point when he was first starting, he literally thought, this is his words, not mine. He thought he was the prettiest man in the world. Not the most handsome, he thought he was the prettiest. And he was terrified that people would hit him in the face because it was the prettiest face in the world. And the thing is, if no one can hit you in the face, nobody can knock you out. And if no one can knock you out, they're going to get real tired trying to do so. And then it's pretty easy to knock them out. A lot of wisdom, even, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. All wisdom, proverbial wisdom, or anywhere you find it, Marcus Aurelius, right, Seneca, Tim Ferriss, (laughs) Uh, any wisdom is pretty damn simple. And people go, but I, I know that already but you don't really, you don't, or you wouldn't be saying that.
1: It reminds me of a PowerPoint presentation I saw once. Uh, It was a YouTube video and there was a gentleman and he broke it down so simply. He said, do you have a problem? And it said, no, then why worry? And he said, yes. Can you do anything about it? Yes. Then why worry? No, then why worry? You know? And it was just the, the most simplistic breakdown of, of how, Uh, Your brain really starts overthinking, and especially when it comes to fear and worry and how irrational it is. Because if you can do something about it, then do it. And if you can't, then don't waste your time worrying.
2: But we, we talked about that earlier. Remember I said if you have any negative emotion, your attention is misplaced. Focus on the problem at hand or the person in front of you. When you're worried, you're not thinking about the problem at hand. You're thinking about the consequences of the problem at hand, which is different.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a, a concept that I'm familiar with, but implementing it is much more difficult when it's, you know, the current moment, a lot of, uh, you know, teachers will say that's all you have is the now. So live in the now. I mean, we talked about Eckhart Tolle and, and that was his book, The Power of Now. So what are some of your tips? If I don't know if you ever get to the point where you start getting distracted or if this is easy for you, but for someone like me, it's, it's hard to stay in that moment. Practice it. You use
2: the distraction itself as a reminder to get back to the task at hand. The distraction becomes a reminder like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be writing this you know, this, this op-ed or whatever it is, or I'm supposed to be handing in a report tomorrow, or I'm in front of my wife or whatever it is, the person in front of you or the task at hand. You train yourself just by reflex. It's hard at the beginning, it's actually not hard for me. You know why it's not hard for me? Because I have such a blast. I know where the joys are. So it's easy for me. Think of me like a, I don't know, like a cheetah on the prowl for fun. <laughs> and there's nothing's going to distract me. I'm just looking for fun and delight.
1: I mean, I know you said you, you have fun in, in every moment, but are there specific things like that you go out and, and purposely do just uh, for fun?
2: No, because I, I, as soon as I encounter people, it's freeform. It's like improvisation. I, I have no idea. But if I get into a car with a driver, I'm improvising right then and there. I have no idea what, I mean, sometimes I'll, you know, want to listen to music or zone out or something, but by and large, if someone's in my, like a six foot radius of me, I'm interacting with them. Otherwise, why would I be in public? May as well be at home working on something.
1: Just wanted to take a moment and thank our newest sponsor, Alpha Coffee Company, a veteran-owned business whose coffee is premium, 100% freshly roasted Arabica coffee. Since their founding, Alpha Coffee has donated over 18,500 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer 10% military discounts and 10% discounts for subscriptions. So purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. One more question here. Well, maybe not one more question, but I have another question. We talk a lot on the podcast about Simon Sinek and his approach. To start with why, mm-hmm. and one of the questions we like to ask all our guests is, "What's your why?"
2: My why to what?
1: To anything. It could be your. I mean, if you want to talk about getting up in the morning, or or okay. I mean, just your so, why to to yeah. to life.
2: So I have this little. uh this little uh, necklace with a, with a chain and a, like a block of metal, like a cell. And that's my reminder of the human condition. Everyone's enslaved. Everyone's in a cell that they've created or a cell that they've unwittingly just adopted, right? A script from their parents or some institution or society. So my why is setting people free, which is to say, I'm not actually setting them free. I'm showing them the fun that can be had outside the cell it's up to them so they can stay in their cell some people choose to they're scared they can't look, let go of the anger and again it's it's not easy i know i know it's not easy so baby steps especially you know if you're suffering from depression or anxiety or people who are really introverted or shy but remember if you're really shy and afraid to talk to people your focus is on yourself not them and if you are really ruthless about focusing on the other person, you can't be shy. You're not even aware of yourself. There's no little space for self-consciousness to get in because you're, you're totally focused on the other person. And the other person knows that. My God, I am the center of that person's universe. Just like when Benjamin Disraeli spoke with Queen Victoria, she thought she was the smartest person in England even though Benjamin Disraeli probably was at the time, but he made her feel that way. She was the center of his attention. And that's another thing leaders can do. Whoever you're with, give that person your total attention. There should be no cell phone out, no nothing. By the way, if you're taking notes on a meeting, don't do it on a cell phone. It's gotta be a pad, like a little black book and a pen. Cell phone, people are gonna wonder, You know, are you texting somebody or it's, it's actually very rude. Or a green notebook. Green notebook, yes. (laughs) I don't know why I said black. It's okay. Green is the best notebook.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, one other point you brought up earlier, I I really like that about setting people free, obviously, proverbially, not physically. But I think that's a great task. And I think there's a lot of people out there. And I'll admit that I'd only been introduced to you, Adam, a couple of months ago, and each time that i've I've listened to you talk and each time that I've watched your your interviews given or taken, I become more fascinated with your your thought process and with you as a person. so I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sitting with us and talking and, and sharing some of your thoughts
2: well, well, thank you so much guys, and you know again, if you listen to all my interviews, you find out Adam's got like five ideas. Like he just keeps coming back to the same five ideas, right? And then I create permutations of those ideas, but basically the same five ideas, five ten ideas. they are not a whole lot of secrets to life. Ray Dalio is a very smart guy, but to publish a book that's like six hundred pages full of principles, I'd be lost at the end of page one. I'd give up. I'd say, well, thank you very much, and I'd toss the book aside. Really, cocoa Puff brain here. I I can't look at six hundred pages. But if you give me a a rule or two, I can, like a hammer, I can work that to death. Think about like the karate kid. Remember the karate kid? He had wax on, wax off, and sand the floor, and that little crane kicky move. And those four moves, that's all he had. He became California State Junior Karate Champion with four moves. You don't need much. You need a hammer and then work it.
1: Hopefully... Joe and I have found our nail in this podcast because I know we really enjoy sitting down and, and just having these conversations. And
0: I've learned so much in the uh, in the last hour and a half that we we sat here and talked to you. And I got that image now of of uh, Bruce Lee's single move ten thousand times.
2: You know, like his one inch punch. That's all you need. <laughs> in front of him, he's gonna have one inch. you get within one inch of him, you're you're screwed. Game over lights out. By the way, if you've ever seen, have you ever seen videos of Bruce Lee in real time? Even when they slow it down 10X, it's still, you can't follow the moves. Arguably the fastest human being of all time, arguably. And that was his hammer, speed. He wasn't that strong. I mean, he was, but he was 5'7 and weighed 130 pounds. Not a lot of bulk.
1: Adam, what's your hammer? I know you've talked a lot about you know, you've kind of I think skirted it through this podcast, but do you have something that you would say is specifically your hammer?
2: I'd say my hammer is things that don't make sense. I'm always I'm relentless when I when I find something that doesn't make sense and wanting to get to the bottom of it because I know no one pays attention to things that don't make sense. And that's actually really where the gold is. Because everyone goes, huh, that doesn't make any sense. Why are interest rates negative or whatever? And they go, ah, well, that's weird. And I don't think about it. But if you do, you come up with some really amazing insights.
1: Adam, I have to comment on that because I, I you know, I believe you shared a story when you were in school once and the word of was used. Oh, yeah. And, and it was fascinating to me that most people would just say, how do you spell the word of? And then would be done with it. But you're, uh, to your point, what you just said, your fascination with why is it such a weird word to me right now? And why can I spell it? You know what? Actually, I'm going to I'm going to amend my hammer.
2: And my real hammer is I've refined my mind over my whole life. And so whenever I I notice an error in my thinking or I notice an idea like a, a forge for ideas and I realize I couldn't on my own have arrived at that idea, then I sit with it until I figure out how to what you're referring to because people, they don't, they don't know when I was in a, actually it was third grade and I uh, miss Callahan, I had a big crush on her and she's talking away and uh, she uses the word of in a sentence. And in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, I forgot how to spell the word of mind. you, I could read it for, so in third grade, I was amused that i had forgotten how to spell a two letter word. And I knew the first letter was a vowel. The second letter was a consonant. I wrote down all the vowels, A, E, I, O, U, sometimes Y, and then all the consonants, and I spent the rest of the day trying to find of, because I was fascinated about the glitch in my brain. And that's, that was the payoff, is the insight into how to use my brain better, not asking somebody, hey, how do you spell the word up? They would have said LF, and I went, oh, yeah, of course. But I spent an entire day and actually couldn't find it, because it's not spelled phonetically. The way it's spelled, it should be off. You know, I guess the the takeaway also for leaders is find out what your hammer is and really develop it. Make a practice of it. Get better and better at doing what you do.
1: That's a good one.
2: Right, you need metrics for that. For example, how does a doctor know whether a doctor this year is a better doctor than he was last year? There's actually no way for them to know. They don't even have metrics. Whereas, say, a trader could say, oh, I made more money this year. In fact, the market was down and I made money. So I I did even better than the market. To come up with metrics where you measure your performance, and I think is an an important one, not to be bound by those metrics. Like if I were a leader and I, let's say I was a karate coach and I'd want to see how quickly I could get my class up from white belt to was yellow belt or whatever. And that would give me a metric. Like, am I doing a good job? So try to find metrics and try to do whatever you're doing better and better. Hey, how would you know whether you're doing a better job as a father this year than last? Really? How would you know? That's a tough question.
1: That's a tough one. Cause I, I know you mentioned the talking to the universe and, and it's something, you know, I, I share a bit of personal uh, bit about myself, but my, I have a four year old son and mm. every night when he's asleep, before I go to bed, I go and I sit down and I thank the universe for, you know, the day with mm. him. And, and I just ask for for one more uh, tomorrow. You know, to your point, um, you just kind of get lost in.
2: And well, that's so beautiful that, you know, your son and, and that's a why for you. Right. To be a better dad, better husband, better, better, you know, uh, in this podcast. Right. You'll find Ways to engage the, the the people in your audience, they're, they're metrics that like, oh, i'm I'm doing a better job. My son spends more time with me, less time going into his room and shutting his door. There. There's a metric. Yeah, continually work at getting better in, in, with a sense of playfulness and joy, not out of
0: drudgery. For me, you know one of the things that I continually work on is being a better communicator, whether it's verbal or written. And so I, I'm always judging how well, you know, ideas are received by the feedback I get from them. Because if I have the idea and I'm communicating it, but nobody understands it, then, right. uh, <laughs> then that's my metric. That's really good.
2: I mean, comedians have that metric, right? You can tell a joke, but if nobody laughs, it's on yell. You've got to keep refining the joke until you get people to laugh and there's no ego in it. And I, by the way, Joe, I did the same thing in the Princeton Review. I would, I would literally try an explanation, say, of the Pythagorean Theorem or whatever. I might go through dozens of iterations in a week with dozens of different kids to find the explanation that worked the best. And once I found it, great, it went into the manual. So I would say that's also true for leaders. Adopt an experimental attitude towards everything. See how things turn out. Don't get so attached to the results. And then reassess, you know, and then come back at it again. Life is an experiment. It's pretty cool.
1: And this podcast, uh, you've shared so many great ideas that I I think you could listen to this podcast multiple times and and take something different away from it each time you listen to it. So to your point, instead of listening to 10 podcasts, you should just listen to this This, podcast 10 times.
2: There you go. There you go. I had a blast with you guys. I don't know why Joe was so damn shy over there.
0: <laughs> and, uh, it's funny, Adam, you know, with with the, the team, the Green Notebook team, like we all we all have strengths and we all have the one thing that we're passionate about. Jacob and I were talking a couple months ago and and he just told me about, you know what I really want to do? I want to get an audible. Mm. I want to, to you know, it's just a random, random dream. And and as I was thinking about it, I said, Jacob, like, I want to take my blog from blog to podcast. You know, I want I still want to run the blog, but I want you to do the podcast. You know, you're the host. I'm just along for the ride. And uh, it's been awesome, you know, because this is this is his strength. It's not mine.
2: It's pretty cool. You, You got different hammers and you combine in your hammers. You know, each of you has a respective strength. The other one does what he does best.
1: Yeah, you said that in your Tim Ferriss podcast as well. Tim Ferriss is going to have to start sending us some royalties for all of the times that we have promoted his <laughs> podcast on. I'm straight, uh, but uh, wow. you know, you said that you were a, um, a huge introvert. I think you said ninety-five-five, and and when you realized you when you hadn't become an introvert, you realized that you need other people to change the world.
2: You gotta, you gotta enroll other people. That's really, I think I'd like to end on that note. You know, it's such a good note. And it, you want to do anything in the world, you've got to get other people enrolled behind your vision. It doesn't matter whether it's a relationship or launching a company or trying to start a movement. It's an image that you create that other people go, yeah, let's make that happen. It's got to be an image not an idea like democracy. That's not an image. But for example, when I said setting people free from cells, whatever it is, whether it's a relationship, you're raising money or trying to get more re- you know, readers for your blog or you know, audience for your podcast, your success depends solely on your ability to excite others to get behind that image. They go, yeah, let's make that happen. That sounds like fun.
1: Well, I think that you've definitely helped us uh, excite people. I think this was a great conversation and a great episode. Just again, Adam, thank you so much for for sharing your time with us.
2: You're so welcome.
1: So thank you again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us. And please join us next week. Make sure you check us out at uh, fromthegreennotebook.com. You can read posts, listen to past episodes of the podcast, subscribe to the monthly reading list and uh, Sunday email. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook and Facebook and Instagram as well. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars on iTunes if you like what we're doing here so you can help us get From the Green Notebook out to more listeners. So I'm Jacob Garonsky signing off. I we'll hope to see you next week. Okay.